A pivotal seven-game homestand begins for the Canucks as they host the Habs tonight. It is the Canucks Hour here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd, my co-host, as always, Canucks insider Thomas Drance, who also does great work covering the team for the Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers excavators and loaders from avenue machinery avenue machinery ca drancer the canucks finished up their morning skate a little bit ago montreal on the ice right now here at rogers arena interesting matchup tonight between the canucks and the habs sorry sorry can i want to talk about morning skate really let's quickly. go so i didn't tweet about it because i i wanted to be able to put the sort of context that i can't put on a tweet character limit and i didn't want to scare anybody okay yes so they're doing some two-on-one rush drills, and Thatcher Demko takes a shot in a sensitive area and was hobbled over for a fair bit of time um, in a lot of pain. And I was really concerned, right? I'm really concerned for Thatcher Demko. And then I see him do that universal jump. <laughs> you all know. You all know the jump. You know that little half jump to get everything feeling normal again? And I was like, oh, okay. He just got hit in exactly the wrong spot. Exactly the spot you didn't want to get hit in. He's fine. And and so that was the scene from Morning Skate that captured my attention the most today. And the reason it did, you know, was not just the sort of uh, Simpsons Film Festival episode of, like, man gets hit by puck in the grind, but was about how essential Thatcher Demko is, how essential Thatcher Demko's health is to everything that we're about to see unfold at Rogers Arena over the next two weeks with this team making... A unlikely, but quite entertaining, push to to perhaps to perhaps get to the get to the real fringes of this playoff race. And I want to bring this up because tonight Thatcher Demko will play his forty sixth game this season. Forty six. That will match the highest amount of games he has ever played in any season ever to this point in his career. Right? He never played more than 46 in the American League. Obviously, in college, you're playing every weekend. You're playing 38, maybe, if you're a workhorse starter. After tonight's game, every time Thatcher Demko plays, he's going to be in uncharted territory in terms of his workload. Now, the goaltending position is cruel. Right? I, I worked with Roberto Luongo in the later stages of his career when it took him two and a half hours to warm up for a morning skate and another two and a half hours to warm up for games. The stress that you put on your hips is completely cruel to your body, frankly. Right? It's very much like a pitcher, right? the stress that they put on their arms, tennis players too. Um, and you know, in Thatcher Demko's case, right, you're talking about a guy who underwent hip impingement surgery when he was in his teens. Right, like, and and that was preventative. That was like that was like Tommy John. That was like a twenty-two-year-old yeah. pitcher getting shut down in advance of a problem. Uh, all all of which is to say is that the position of goaltender is extraordinarily demanding, and Demko has now built up the sort of resume where I feel very confident. And, and I analyze goalies a little bit slowly, <laughs> more slowly than others. Right, so it's like I feel very confident that Demko is an above-average starter in this league. I think it's very likely that he's a top 10 goaltender in this league. And I think he's got the upside to be a top three superstar goaltender in this league. Like, he is everything to this team 
in terms of their run. But I do think if you think critically about what the last 10 games have looked like for this team, right, there have been moments where he's looked a little banged up. He's looked like he's battling through things, where he hasn't been the sole reason that this team was winning games the way he sometimes was in December and January. Um, Now, the good thing about that is that the offense has stepped up and, and done their part. So that's that's the good part. That's the positive spin. But the 25 games remaining, like Demko's going to play a lot of them. I think we're going to see him play six games in the next 12 days. Um, I, I wouldn't be shocked if we see him play a back-to-back at some point, especially with the really tough back-to-back coming up at Elevation in Colorado and then, you know, in Minnesota the next day. Like, that's a tough, that's a tough back-to-back set. And you're going back in terms of the time zone from mountain to, to central, right? So it's not, that's a quick turnaround. That's a really tough back-to-back to play. He is proven that he can hold down a workhorse role and still excel in this league, still be a great player, still be this team's best player and most important player. But the durability factor is such a key thing to watch for, especially because as a guy gets fatigued, one thing that can go... First is their consistency, and and again, I want I want people to think about Luongo because he's the he's the guy who we all sort of know in this market and, and can sort of think about this the most closely with. When Luongo was in that era where he was one of the best regular season goalies and this team's biggest star, and then would fade in the playoffs, right? That was sort of before we knew that goalies really should play like fifty five games in the regular season. That that was when you were like, "Wow, we have a goalie who can play seventy games. This is amazing. <laughs> amazing. Let's do it. Right. Let's go for it." And if you look, if you look and you chart Luongo's numbers, right? We all remember him as this guy who struggled in big moments in the playoffs. But in fact, in some of the biggest games that he played, there there were shutouts. Right? It was. It wasn't that Luongo, in my opinion anyway, I think when you look back and realize, okay, he was playing his 80th game of that season, I think there's a sense for me anyway that it wasn't so much about the moment as it was fatigue, as it was that once he, once he got into playing 75, 85, 90 games in a season, you just couldn't count on getting a certain level of performance. He was either great or he was getting blown up, and there was no in-between at that point in the season. Now, Demko's obviously at a lower rate. I think he's got the the work rate that he's put in every single hour that he had to to prepare himself for this moment, this stretch run. I think he's put in I think he's got the mental strength, the mental makeup to overcome, like to mind over matter any pain that he's managing. But make no mistake, like goalie fatigue impacts performance an extraordinary amount, and what the Canucks are about to ask from their most important player is something he's never done before. And, and I'm, I'm not putting a negative spin on it. I still think Thatcher Demko is going to be... If this team makes the playoffs, Thatcher Demko is going to be reason 1A. 1A. But I do think that it's, it's a, it's a storyline to track as we go here, particularly in the wake of how he felt uh, clearly, visibly, uh, during the latter stages of that Maple Leafs game. And Bruce Boudreaux was asked about Thatcher Demko today and you know had more of just the, the, the superlatives and the platitudes for Thatcher Demko that are all well-deserved, right? Called him the hardest-working goalie he's ever had. At this point, with 25 games remaining on the schedule, the Canucks have five back-to-backs. So that's kind of the, that's kind of the cap. Right on. Now we'll see what happens if they do fall out of the playoff race towards the end of the year. But if you are kind of mapping out how many games he's going to get here, I think bare minimum you're looking at 20 of those 25, right? With whoever the backup is, whether it remains mm-hmm. Jarrah or somebody else, getting the five on the back to back. And that's assuming 
that Thatcher Demko doesn't have to come into relief in any of those appearances, which has been the case the last couple of times that Yarrow Halak has gotten a start, right? So that, if he plays those 20 of those 25, with the backup getting the five, you know, uh, five back-to-back games, that takes him to 65. That's a big number for a goalie. That's a massive number. 65 games played in this era of NHL goaltending. And I can assure you, you know, obviously it was a different coaching staff, uh, but Ian Clark was here at the beginning of the year. And I assure you that if you were kind of mapping out what the split in starts between Demko and Halak would look like, it was not going to be, you know, 65-17. And I know it's not quite what it's going to be because there's appearances and starts. Well, and because and both of them missed some time on, yeah. a, on a protocol. But exactly. yeah, you're right. You know what I mean? Like, they would they would not, that would not be the ideal ratio that you would have. But again, if they stay in this playoff race, that's probably what you're looking at. Because I don't see any reason why they wouldn't start Thatcher Demko unless it's on a back-to-back. So it absolutely is something to monitor. The other thing that's interesting is that is kind of one piece of a larger conversation which, after this homestand, potentially after the deadline, is going to heat up. And it's something we're very familiar with here in Vancouver, which is how do you balance winning these games down the stretch versus what's best for the future of the team, what's best for the future of individual players? Because there's no doubt that if you're trying to maximize your point totals in the standings, if you're trying to give yourself the best chance to win every game, you play Thatcher Demko as much as you can with the exception of back-to-backs. There's no doubt about that. Now, he's still so young. Do you worry that workload this year will translate to how he comes into next year? I don't know. Ian Clark probably a lot better. Well, definitely a yeah. lot better qualified. You just, you just trust. You yeah. just trust in Clark. I but, mean, that's the one. That's the one uh, advantage. Like that's the one thing that you know. It's the ace in the hole. That's the ace in the hole. You've you've got a guy you absolutely trust to manage this. But I do think Demko's usage, like the club's priorities at the deadline, need to exist through a prism. That factors in more than just the club's, you know, 76% – or sorry, it's 86% shot of missing the playoffs versus their 14% shot of making it, right? I mean, you you have to be thinking in years, especially with a young goaltender, a first-time starter, a guy who if the season ended today, most of the league would be talking about as a top-five goaltender. You you don't want – you want this to end really well for a guy who's clearly – you know, the linchpin, frankly, of this franchise's plans to succeed in the near term. Yeah, you want to you want to have it go in the books as this incredible season, which it has been, right? Rather than, oh, you know, he played really well until March, and then fatigue crept up on him a little bit, right? So I think you that's a good point. You want to be going into the offseason with this campaign looking as strong as it has been for Thatcher Demko. And it's definitely, you know, we'll... The Yarrow Halak, no movement clause. Will he be moved? Can they find a trading partner? All of that. That discussion is going to continue going in to the trade deadline. And the way that impacts and how Halak's performance impacts Thatcher Demko's workload is really something to pay attention here uh, in the final 25 games for the Vancouver Canucks. As mentioned off the top, by the way, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Get your thoughts in to the show. As mentioned off the top, they are playing against the Montreal Canadiens here tonight at Rogers Arena. Bit of a later start, 7.30 game time, but I think because it's on national TV in the States, might not be see puck drop till 7.45, 7.52. Interesting matchup between these two teams, Drancer, because there's a lot of similarities in how their season has unfolded, right? Obviously, higher expectations than were realized early in the season in both markets. Regime change, ultimately a coaching change, although it happened in different orders uh, for both of these teams. 
and both teams, once they made that coaching change, started to see significantly better results. Montreal was having one of the worst seasons in franchise history, but all of a sudden, hey, they've won seven of their last eight under head coach Martin Saint-Louis. The Montreal Canadiens are playing so much better under Martin Saint-Louis, it's almost unbelievable, particularly considering his lack of coaching experience. They might be onto something. They, right? uh, the, the jump, the jump, like they went from a 44% expected goals team, which is truly dregs of the league. Well, that's they, were, like, they were dreadful. They were absolutely dreadful. <laughs> that's like, that's like lottery pick every time out territory to, to being a 51% expected goals team, which is better than the Canucks. Like, how? It's unbelievable, especially because they've been selling good players off through that process and have mostly been without Jake Allen, who I don't think is playing tonight. Although, is he on the ice right now? Yeah, I think he is. So, but, well, I mean, we'll, we'll wait to hear from the man himself, the, you know, the, the pint-sized Hall of Famer. <laughs> but, you know, this team, this is not, do not look at the standings and assume this is an easy game. No. The Montreal Canadiens are a formidable, a formidable side at the moment. They're one of the hottest teams in hockey. They're getting results. You know, I think, I think the big edge that the Canucks are going to have is that they're playing so much better offensively. And the Habs, you know, as well as Sam Montembeau has been playing, you know, the Habs goaltending is the type of goaltending that I do think that Vancouver's one-shot scorers should be able to get to. Especially because, you know, and I, I want to talk about this a little bit, because I, I can be a little slow. Not not slow, but I can be a little bit slow on reacting to trends, right? I need to see, I, I let data inform so much in my opinion, that I kind of need to see a team do it multiple times before I'm going to... Sort of say, hey, they've reversed this thing that I'd seen over 20 games, right? So I'd been talking about Vancouver's flagging five-on-five play for a little bit. And there was a stretch there. And I, I honestly, I think it matches what, you, what, what our listeners saw, too. Like in February, yeah, they were still picking up points. But there weren't a lot of games where you came away from it thinking, oh, boy, like that team's looking really good. And then you think about how they looked against the Rangers and the Islanders and the Maple Leafs. And, I mean, that was a... Those were really good performances. It is showing up, right? This team is beginning to play better at 5-on-5, closer to the level that they managed in December as opposed to what they were looking like in October. And that's a huge difference, right? If you can sustain that level, if you can sustain that level, you're you know, not, not in with a good shot, but you're in with a shot over the balance of the season. The other thing that's been trending in a really good direction, and this is vital because I've been talking a lot about how the Canucks are number one in the NHL in, in shooting percentage over the course of the past 12 weeks. There was a portion of that where they were just converting everything, but they weren't generating a lot. And when that happens, when there's a gap between results and, and process, I always expect over the long haul, the process to, or the, the results to catch up to what the process is. Well, over the course of this last four or five games, this team is generating scoring chances unlike they have all season. Like at a far higher rate, if you look at sort of the 10-game rolling average, than they have at any point in this season. Like it, it looks like the – if you graphed it, it would look like the oil prices, right? Like it is, <laughs> it is awesome. And when that starts to happen, right, when you're an elite offensive team on an offensive bender, shooting percentage-based, I believe it. Right then, all of a sudden, I'm not picking it to regress necessarily because you're doing the work to give yourself those chances. Vancouver has been their power plays trending in a in a much better direction. Their five on five plays trending in a much better direction after this road trip. If they can sustain that, then you know we'll see. Like then, then this could be a really interesting couple of weeks. 
Unfortunately, however, Jamie, I am loath to report that the penalty kill is at, oh at, is added again. Yep. The penalty kill is added again, trending again in the wrong direction. Uh, we'll see how that shapes up, but uh, not ideal. And not ideal. as much as you know, you should not you should not base your kind of prediction of this Habs game based on where the Habs are in the standings because they have been so much better under Martin Saint Louis and all of the Canucks, Bruce Boudreau, Bo Horvat, J.T. Miller, who who spoke after their game day skate today, they were quick to say the same thing, right? We're not taking this team lightly. We know how well they're playing. And look, the Canucks, of all people, should know what a coaching change can do for the spirits of a struggling team, right? They've lived it firsthand just this year. Because of all of those things you're saying, right, about some of the performance indicators for the Canucks in recent games, you still look at this Habs roster and think, okay, the Canucks are at home, they're rested. Yeah, the Habs are rested too, even though they're on a road trip because they've had three days off as well. But you still look at this and think, this is a team that the Canucks should be able to beat, right? Like, it's still a bit of a – the roster that the Habs are going to ice tonight is still a bit of a, a dog's breakfast, right, as well as they're playing. A hodgepodge. Yeah, it's a hodgepodge. It's it's uh, it's a flawed lineup. Let's just put it that yeah. way. doesn't I mean I you like, can take it lightly. I I, as a, as a uh, overly devoted puppy owner – Right, I'm not. I'm not going to take dogs' breakfast lightly. Like that's not acceptable to me. My dog eats as well as I do. Like I'd eat his breakfast most days. He eats so. the Colorado Avalanche of breakfast. Every, <laughs> yeah, he does every day. He does it's fast on the back end. Let's put it that way because of his digestive system. Anyway, <laughs> the, the thing, oh, I, the, the thing oh, I like about this Habs team in particular, right now that Cole Caulfield's regressed and playing well, uh, is that top line can do damage. Right, Nick Suzuki. We've seen Nick Suzuki be. Um, you know, I, like, I, I bet you, if you look through the shooters that Demko has faced 50 shots from, for example, over his career, that Nick Suzuki would be up the leaderboards in terms of players who ventilated him, or, or at least have had success shooting against him. Ventilation's probably too strong a word, because no one ventilates Thatcher Demko, that's how good he is. But, you know, he's had some success shooting against Demko. Nick Suzuki might be one of the smartest young players in hockey, right? He's he's up there. Elias Pettersson, for me, is up there, right? It's a short list, but in terms of just a head for the game, Nick Suzuki is up there. And then that brings us to the big, fast machine that is Josh Anderson. And now I'm, I'm going to digress here a little bit, Jamie. Yeah. Gather around, children. I'm going to tell you a story, a story familiar to Vancouver Canucks fans. Uh, Canucks fans have been for generations talking about the power for thank you thank you Faber that's a perfect drop gather around children let me tell you a nightmarish story about another power forward that got away Vancouver Canucks history is filled the annals of Canucks history are filled with the power forward that got away story or the power forward whose tenure didn't go the way you'd hoped Cam Neely, obviously, mm-hmm, is top mm-hmm. of the list, but Shauna and Toski probably can factor in. You can probably factor in Bertuzzi and how things ended there. You can certainly factor in Zach Cassian. You can definitely factor in Jake Furtanen. How about a, how about a Steve Bernier? Ooh, a Steve Bernier. Let's go. Yep. I like it. In 2012, Josh Anderson was playing fourth-line minutes for a loaded London Knights team. This London Knights team included Bo Horvat. It included... Um, Vladislav Nemesnikov, Seth Griffith. Max Domi. Yeah, even Jared Knight's a second-round pick. The Rupert Twins, Greg McKaig. I mean, go down the list. Uh, Austin Watson was a first-round pick. Chris Tierney, a second-round pick. Just a loaded. Andreas Athanasiu. That is a loaded team. Just a ridiculous team. And so what happens when you've got a ridiculous major junior team is that the month of December rolls around and they all leave. All of those players leave and go play for their world junior teams. 
And during these this stretch of games, the Canucks had an Ontario area scout, a, a gentleman named Dan Polango, who now works for the Minnesota Wild. Uh, you can draw your draw the straight line there to Judd Brackett if you'd like. And during the stretch that Ryan and uh, sorry Anderson was playing just a ton of minutes for the Knights, he excelled and shot up Vancouver Canucks draft boards. Right? They they did their diligence. They tracked him closely. They were very interested in taking him in the middle rounds. They loved the player. Loved the player. And then the 2012 NHL trade deadline came around, and the Canucks sold two fourth-round picks for Sammy Paulson. It didn't go well. It didn't go well. The Canucks lost in the first round that year, and Sammy Paulson never played a game in the NHL again. That's a tough one. That's a tough beat. With the fourth-round pick, originally a New York Islanders pick that the Canucks had acquired when they traded Erhoff's negotiating rights to Garth Snow. The Columbus Blue Jackets took Josh Anderson off the board, and the Canucks were without their power forward. And, of course, he was selected with a Canucks draft pick. Now, in subsequent years, some of the some of the Gillis-era holdovers during the Benning regime continued to view Anderson highly, continued to view him as the one that got away. And over the years, many times, the, the, the club tried to reacquire him. Many times. Every time there was a contract holdup. <laughs> He was their white whale. They can never get it done. They even tried when he moved to the Habs. Yeah. They never got it done. Josh Anderson is a Hab, and we know what he does in the playoffs and what he did in the playoffs last time around. One of the hardest guys to check in the league. For me, he's not a top-line player. He's like a really good middle six guy with a completely unique player profile. But he is an apex predator, a fantastic piece. And with him, Caulfield, and Suzuki, that line is fast. That line is smart, and and Anderson is maybe one of the hardest guys to contain in the entire league. Canucks will have their hands full containing them. That that line is really the one that stands out and scares you with the Habs, right? Because you have the combination of that size and and, the, and just that power that Josh Ander brings. Josh Anderson brings mixed with the the speed, the skill, the intelligence, the finishing ability of Caulfield and Suzuki. The Anderson story is really fascinating, and I'm sure lots of uh, plenty of Canucks fans are shaking their heads as you said that yet another power forward slipped through their grasp. That element of it is is interesting, but I also find it fascinating. To kind of get a sense of how much divergence there can be in teams' draft lists after you get past, you know, the first 10, 15 or so. Because what? You said Josh Anderson was top 25 in the Canucks list that year, right? He didn't come off the board until 95 at uh, That's how draft lists look, right? Like, your your seventh-round picks are top 30 players yeah. for you. I mean, that's draft, li- draft lists diverge so much outside of the top 15. And that's just how they look. It's it's wild. And then so you can kind of extrapolate from there, right? So they took Brendan Gauntz uh, with their first round pick, uh, which Brendan Gauntz still playing in the NHL for having Columbus success this year. Yeah, love so to see it. Shout out to Brendan Gauntz. Uh, Bre- Brendan Gauntz, by the way, famously the Canucks Army number one prospect. Something that I got ground for <laughs> for years, even though even though it wasn't my choice, right? Like it's a consensus pick. We had a point system. Bo Horvat was my number one. Bo Horvat was my number one, but I got ground about it for years, and now he's. Playing and crushing it yeah. for a team that has noted prominent Canucks Army alumni Josh Weisbach and Cam Lawrence on the payroll. I love to see it. Yeah, 
the Canucks' second round pick that year was Alexander Mallet. Did not pan out. I believe he was an overage guy. They, they out were of the QMJHL. They, they were doing this thing to try and accelerate yes, the path. They thought, hey, we need work. guys. We're in our window right now. We need guys in our lineup. We'll draft a twenty-year-old. Didn't work out. They didn't pick again until the fifth round. So they missed all of round three, all of round four, which is when they would have had an opportunity uh, to go get Josh Anderson. Ben Hutton was their next pick in uh, in round five at one forty-seventh overall. But not to be. With uh, Josh Anderson and the Vancouver Canucks, they will get a chance to see him up close and personal on the ice at Rogers Arena. We have tons and tons and tons of trade deadline questions coming in to the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. We'll try to hit as many of those as we can on the other side. Uh, as a reminder, don't forget to subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Spotify, or Google, wherever you get your favorite podcasts, and make sure you leave us a five-star rating and review as well. Lots more coming up on a Canucks game day. It's the Canucks Hour on Sportsnet 650. <laughs> My dog eats as well as I do. Like, I'd eat his breakfast most days. He eats so. the Colorado Avalanche of breakfast. <laughs> Welcome back to Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, live from Rogers Arena. Jamie Dodd, Canucks insider Thomas Drance here with you for another half hour on Canucks Game Day. We talked a little bit about the matchup uh, between the Canucks and the Habs in the first segment, Drancer, but you know what time of year it is. It is the silly season. It is trade deadline season officially now. I know we got a jump start on trade deadline season here in Vancouver this year because of everything that happened with this team, but around the NHL, it is trade deadline season now, and 650-650 in the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Everyone, everyone wants to ask about potential connections, potential a potential trade partnership between the Vancouver Canucks and the Pittsburgh Penguins. No surprise, obviously, because Jim Rutherford was, until relatively recently, the head hockey decision maker for the Pittsburgh Penguins. So not at all a surprise that this would be out there. And yeah, as I said, I'll, I'll just run through some of the texts that are coming into our inbox. 650-650, this one unsigned. Do you think a trade of Besser and a third can get it done for John Marino. Another one says, what do you make of the John Marino rumors? Please speak to your thoughts of how he fits long-term in the Canucks lineup. If he were to be traded as part of a package for Besser, what other pieces would be included in that deta- in that deal? Excuse me. Uh, another one comes in. Besser and Mott for Marino, Rodriguez, and a fourth. Who says no? That's from Devin in Saskatoon. So everyone, everyone is asking. Not just about the Canucks and the Pittsburgh Penguins collaborating on a deal, but specifically the idea of some framework involving Brock Besser going to Pittsburgh and right-handed shot defenseman John Marino coming back to Vancouver. Drancer, what is your reaction to all of that speculation? First, I've got to address Devin in Saskatoon, a faithful texter, always has good insights, but I want to give him a piece of advice. When you're asking a who said no, right? Yeah. Um, a A good rule of thumb is uh, is whichever team you're throwing in a mid-rounder to for, um, it's the other team that says no. Yeah. As a general rule of thumb. Although Mott, Mott and Besser for Marino and Rodriguez and a fourth, actually, I think the Pittsburgh Penguins probably say no to that. Anyway. I think both teams might say no to that. Yeah, both teams might. So, John Marino. I like John Marino a fair bit. I think he's a little bit limited in terms of his puck skills. I'd sort of... I'd sort of present him to you as being the highest end possible version of Tucker Pullman. You know what I mean? Like if Tucker Pullman is 25 cents, John Marino is a dollar, but in the same currency, 
right? <laughs> sure. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think he's a guy who can get back. He can turn his back to the oncoming four checkers. He can make a smart play. He can get the puck moving in the right direction. I don't know that he's got the puck skills that you'd really want him as a long-term fit with Quinn Hughes. I still think it would be it would be less less Chris Tanev, more like a faster version of of Tucker Pullman or a slightly more skilled version of Tucker Pullman with with better wheels. But but what John Marino does have is more hockey IQ in my view uh, than any regular on the right side of the Canucks defense. He's also younger and I think that ticket is going to age decently well. Um, I don't know why the Penguins, however, would get rid of a right-handed defenseman. They've got Chris Letang, who's a pending UFA, and they've got Chad Ruadil. And other than that, you know, I, I mean, feels like if you traded a righty under contract, you'd have to be making a corresponding move of some kind or getting a body back that can just eat minutes in that role for your team. So I struggle to see the fit there, but no one would expect or no one would be surprised by the Penguins and the Canucks doing business Uh, familiarity the familiarity that the Canucks have with the Penguins roster considering that they've hired Alvin and Clancy and Rutherford is through the roof right if you feel you have an edge in knowledge we we think this player can do that and we think you know they they can be more for us than they are for them Um, you know if you think you have an edge in knowledge you, you best exploit it like that's that's classic arbitrage right that's classic value hunting and if there's value to be had uh, with the Penguins, then it makes sense. The, the, the problem, though, is the Penguins are really good. I mean, this is a top-five team in the NHL yeah. by point percentage right now. This might be Crosby's last big run. You've got Malkin to re-sign. You've got Brian Rust to re-sign. And by the way, Brian Rust is a $5.5 million player. Like, are you ready to live in a world where Brian Rust makes $6 million? Because you should get ready. That's happening this offseason. Or thereabouts. And then you've got Chris Letang. So, <laughs> you know... Are you taking one more run, or are you looking to trade your sort of second-pair righty who kills penalties for you at, uh, at the highest rate of anyone on the team uh, right now to acquire a guy who's going to complicate your cap picture this offseason? Um, look, uh, maybe, maybe. We'll see if it has legs. That one, to me, feels more like an offseason yes. exchange as opposed to an in-season one, particularly because of how all-in I'd expect the Penguins to be with their shopping priorities before the deadline. There's been a lot of smoke around this. I can't add a lot to what's being reported, um, but, you know, John Marino makes sense to me. I, I do think that the four, the three defensemen on relatively big tickets that the Penguins have, I think, have all been available at certain points over the last 12 months, and I, I refer to, you know, uh, Canucks villain Mike Matheson, uh, in addition to Marcus Pedersen, which would be a gift for Shorty and Cheech, <laughs> and um, and so we'll we'll sort of see where this one goes. It's a it's definitely an interesting possible trade partner considering the links, but I just struggle to see the fit in season. Well, we had your uh, athletic colleague Josh Yoey on the People Show with Bick and Randeep yesterday, doing kind of a tr- trade deadline preview for various teams that might be buying at the deadline, and what he had to say about John Marino was. Definitely gettable under this regime, which might not be as, you know, they didn't sign him to the contract. They didn't trade to acquire him. That was Jim Rutherford. They might not be quite as enamored with Marino as Jim Rutherford was. So Marino might be available. But as you said, this would be an offseason deal. Because when you're in the position that the Pittsburgh Penguins are in right now, 
maybe you're not crazy about the player, but you're not going to trade him when he's eating big minutes for you right now going in to a playoff run unless you get just the perfect replacement back. So I I do think if there was going to be a specifically Brock Besser for John Marino fit, it would be something that's going down in the offseason. I really like John Marino as a player. His rookie season was fantastic, and people even forget now, you know, that was the same rookie season as as Quinn Hughes, as Kale McCarr, I believe. I think Adam Fox was in there, and people weren't putting John Marino in that category, right? But it was like, oh, hey, you know, there's this wave of young defensemen, and don't forget, down a tier, there's John Marino. Well, as, as well, he hasn't lived up to that type of billing in the subsequent years, but I do think there's a really interesting fit. And as you said, the contract, yeah, he's got term, he's got salary, but it's the kind of term and salary that you can actually see aging pretty well, 4.4 uh, for five more years after this one. I mean, if you're getting a you know bona fide top four right shot defenseman who's in his prime years for 4.4, you feel pretty good about that kind of deal. But I do think it's the kind of thing that's going – that makes a lot more sense – if you're doing it in the off season, I just kind of keep trying to construct these like super deals between the Penguins <laughs> and the Canucks, right? Because you know we know Jim Rutherford uh, thinks pretty highly of Kasperi Kapanen. Team to play, fantasy yeah, hockey. right. Like we know they like Kasperi Kapanen. You know we know uh, Brian Burke has historically liked his big tough players. Like would they be interested in a Tyler Myers? And I keep just ballooning it out until there's like four players going either way, which I don't think is going to happen. But there's a lot of potential interesting matches, I think between the Penguins uh, and the Canucks. And obviously with the Jim Rutherford history, it makes a lot of sense too. Yeah, it just feels to me more like there's so many moving pieces and the and the deals that make the most sense involve multiple parts. Yes. You know what I mean? That, Wh- that it which feels, makes it feel like a draft thing. Feels like a feels like an off-season thing to me, but who knows? Who knows? We'll uh, we'll sort of see. I, I I like this text in from Tal, by the way. That was a great comparison. <laughs> Marino is like Tucker Pullman, except faster, smarter, more skilled, and on a better contract. So, in other words, completely different. Um, <laughs> you know, guilty as charged. I mean, I'm not going to argue with you, but but I think it's more in your mind's eye, like the mobile defensive defenseman who I wouldn't call a transitional defender because they're not necessarily a first pass guy. But, for me, Marino is like the apex version of your ideal punt and hunt, like top four defender. Yeah. Right? That's what he is to me. He's not a top pair guy, and I don't know that I love the puck skills there, but I do think that he can get the puck out of uh, out of his own end, and I do think he can make sharp, quick plays with his uh, back to attackers on retrievals, and that's so important in in the NHL. That's that's Tucker Pullman's best skill. As Tucker Pullman has slowly won me over over the course of the season, it's been that ability. In contrast with some of the slower defenders that we see on like Calgary's third pair, or the entire Seattle Kraken roster, or the New York Rangers, who we saw right Tucker Pullman's facility with getting back quickly enough to make a quick play, to make a quick outlet. Uh, sort of works, even though I think he gives a fair bit back at the offensive blue line, particularly when he's playing with Quinn Hughes. Uh, this text comes in unsigned. We are so going to regret trading Besser and Mott. Big mistake, but what do I know? I'm just a diehard fan. And that kind of transition to, transitions into a conversation that I wanted to have here on the show. And I know uh, earlier today on the Jeff Merrick show with Greg Wyshynski, they got into this a little bit, right? What not Rather than speculating what deals teams might do or what would be the best for the team, kind of flip it around. What's the biggest potential mistake that the, that the Canucks could make at this deadline, right? What potential move, and for you as a fan, as a listener, 
do you not want to see the, the team make? And obviously I'm talking about, you know, plausible moves, moves within the realm of possibility here. And this texture brings up specifically Mott and Besser. Now, I would have no problem with them trading Tyler Mott, right? And especially we've heard that there maybe haven't, hasn't really been serious contract extension, uh, contract extension talks between Mott and the team. So in light of that, to me, it makes even more sense to explore trading Tyler Mott. But if we are just thinking of moves that could kind of go sideways, moves that might not work out, for the Vancouver Canucks, I do think trading Brock Besser is near or at the top of the list for me, right? And I, you know, as much as I like John Marino, and I really do like John Marino, if you are trading Brock Besser more or less solely because you're scared of the qualifying offer situation, right? And you're just saying, you know what? I don't want to deal with this. I want to, it's a headache. I want to give it away to someone else. Well, that also probably means you're getting back somebody else's headache in return, right? And I just think that kind of deal for Brock Besser would be a big mistake. Now, look, when we're talking about potential mistakes of deals, obviously it always, you know, it always matters what the return is going to be, right? So maybe there is a team out there that's going to help you get out of the Brock Besser contract situation and give you really good cost-controlled assets in return. And if that's the situation, well, okay, I think there's a different answer to be had here. But just in a vacuum, if it's, hey, we're trading Brock Besser for somebody else's RFA who they don't want to pay this year, and there's not necessarily a talent upgrade, there's not really a value upgrade, it's just kind of headache for headache, that deal doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I think you have much more chance of winning a Brock Besser extension than you do winning a Brock Besser trade at this year's trade deadline. I, I tend to agree. We also had a, a good good comment in about uh, Besser uh, from Blazer, and this was just before the show. Yeah. Let's see how bad Brock Besser wants to play here contract-wise. If we can't get a team fr- home team-friendly contract, let someone else have the headache. Maybe Rutherford can pull another Phil Kessel-type trade out of this. Love your show. We call it the Canucks Conspiracy <laughs> Network. All right. Fair enough. Um, so... Let's just think, uh, or, or sorry, uh, Faber, can you queue up my story time? <laughs> can you queue up my story time drop? Gather around, children. I've got a Canuck story from years of old to tell you. Thank you. The Alex Burroughs contract, one of the great value contracts in the history of this franchise, right, was signed right ahead of the deadline. And it was signed effectively while explaining to the player... <laughs> that if the term in the deal wasn't agreed to, he would be sold, right? It was it was done hat in hand, right? And that's a really important thing to note as this deadline approaches, right? There are mixed messages, for example, on Halak's willingness to move. Well, consider Burroughs' trade out of Vancouver where he got an extension in the deal, right? For players and agents, this is also a leverage point, especially if you have an NMC or an NTC, in which... You know, your willingness to waive can be bought, right? There's a leverage point here. And similarly, for a player like Brock Besser, you know, it's an interesting moment. And for a player like Tyler Mott, too, a player who I also really like and would be absolutely not critical. Like, the the thing about a Mott extension is I won't be critical if they sign a four times $2.25 million deal so long as they clear out cap space elsewhere. The problem with a Mott extension is not... Signing Tyler Mott, who I think is a great player and a big part of a line that has driven a lot of Vancouver's recent success, the problem is that if is that if you commit your resources there, you can't commit it elsewhere, right? And, and then things dry up really quickly. But if you can move out the cap space to do that responsibly, you know, I don't have a huge problem with it. 
if they can do it in a way that they come out of the equation, having moved out additional cap space for cap commitments, I'll be like, hey, that's good work. I, I think that's a good call. So with the Besser thing, with the Mott thing, you know, be mindful of that too, right? The next 10 days are a pressure point, not just for teams looking to buy to upgrade their roster one last time before the 2022 Stanley Cup playoffs begin. It's also a pressure point for teams to get work done, to get things done. And that's why you're hearing so much about negotiations with Tomas Hurdle, with Claude Giroux, on and on down the list. Uh, this is a real pressure point for teams to make some of these decisions and to make some of these decisions and test how willing guys are to work with them uh, on a variety of different fronts. We, we know the Canucks have been engaged in some of that. We also, you know, at least last late last week, my understanding was that talks had been pretty quiet on both fronts, both Mott and Besser fronts. So we'll see where this goes. And that's goes. contract talks. Contract talks, excuse yeah. me. Uh, although trade talks around the league have been in a bit of a lull, I expect that'll pick up this week. So we'll sort of see where we end up. But, uh, but yeah, I think it's a really salient point that, uh, that you can utilize this moment to, to figure out exactly what things look like. And that's where the Besser QO, the Besser QO for me, is most impactful, right? Because as opposed to a player who has a more, you know, a QO that more closely matches their cap hit, there's just no incentive. There's just no incentive from the player's perspective to... To negotiate now. To negotiate, well, or certainly to do anything team-friendly now, right? I, I mean, you're not going to sign for five and a half when you're owed 7.5 times one, or you're a UFA and can get a home run at 24. I mean, there's just no incentive. So... The, the way that the QO most complicates this deadline from a Canucks perspective, in addition to the limitation that it imposes on Besser's trade value, is that it also diminishes the incentive on that end, the rational interest behind doing anything team-friendly expeditiously, even if a team-friendly deal might be a possibility come summertime. Uh, Dennis from Langley, uh, with a good text that just came in, 650-650, says, couldn't a logical reason to trade Besser be the fact that he's a winger and not a center, since you can find value wingers much easier? Just look at your beloved Florida Panthers transfer this year and what oh, they've done, adding Chris, wingers. Chris, ding it. They came up. Where's the ding? There, there we go. go. There we go. It's an interesting point, but I think for me what that comes down to is, are you getting either cap space or valuable assets back for Brock Besser, right? Like the theory of that, of what Dennis from Langley is suggesting, right? Is like, hey, move out a winger because that's kind of the easiest position. I'm using easy in scare quotes because I understand, you know, doing what the Florida Panthers do requires a lot of hard work and hitting on a lot of bets. I get that. But theoretically, yeah, it is kind of the easiest position to fill on the cheap in the summer in the UFA market. I do understand that, but it's still what are you getting back again, whether it's in salary cap flexibility or in actual assets for trading Brock Besser, right? Because if you're just getting back more money, then it doesn't actually help you with that, hey, we're going to sign a whole bunch of cheap wingers and hope some of them hit theory. That's a route I have no problem with, by the way. I I'm completely open to the team exploring that, but you got to free up the salary cap space to do that. Trading Besser might not help you with that. Well, yeah, I mean, honestly, that's probably like, in the if the Canucks hadn't done as well as they have over the past 30 games, that would be my plan A. And And I'll be honest with you, and this is worth saying because Jeff Gordon is in town. <laughs> right, and Jeff Gordon detonated a team that was closer, that had a more realistic playoff shot um, in 2018 than the Canucks do at the moment. So, uh, you know, in honor of the most, the NHL's most honest rebuilder, 
Um, you know, I, I do think it's worth noting that this would still be my plan A would be to, to move out a bunch of money for the purpose of moving out a bunch of money, uh, accumul- accumulating assets, but proceeding with max cap space back. And, and if that involves moving, you know, $15 million worth of really good forward talent, I, I mean, that's the cost uh, of, of what this club has to do. Now, I don't think you can ignore that this team exists in the real world, right? That there are real world considerations, including playoff revenue on the other side of the pandemic. And here's another thing. This group has already been through a moment where they had success in the bubble, right? And then the team lost everybody, right? Like these players have already gone through a, a moment with this organization where, you know, we're on the, we're on the up good days are ahead. And then the rug got pulled out from under them. And we saw how it impacted their their season last year. I, I would argue that it continued to impact and spilled over into the start of this year. And, you know, how careful do you have to be about doing that again to this group of players, particularly on the run they're on, right? I, I think this team has now done enough that they've probably earned this homestand, which ends before the deadline, right? Uh, they probably earned this homestand to sh- to show what they can do, and and that runs contrary to something that I've said uh, pretty consistently, which is that this team needs to be solely focused on the long term. But look, when you when you go to, to what is it twenty twenty eight and four, right? Not twenty eight and four, but twenty space eight and four. I right, believe 20, is what it is twenty com slash eight slash four. Um, you know, I, I I think you I think you get a chance to see how far you can push it. At least you get this week. Right, like at least you get right, this week, right? Uh, in my view, and and I think I've even approached that point as the guy who is, you know, if Jeff Gordon's the most honest rebuilder, right? I'm the most frequent critic of of this team's quality, and even I, even I'm sort of reaching that conclusion is something you probably have to do, particularly considering the organizational history that Rutherford finds himself inheriting. Well, and that route is made so much more viable based on the fact that Tyler Mott's the only pending UFA that they're really looking to move, right? If JT Miller was a UFA at this deadline, or Brock Besser, or Connor Garland, or any of these other names that have been out there, it would be a much a much different story. But because they have a little bit of rope with those guys, they have some time it becomes a lot more viable to kick it, kick the can down the road to the deadline, uh, or to, to the draft, I should say, in the summer. Uh, Jay and Calgary texted in earlier in the show kind of along those lines. He says, I am not opposed to the organization really detonating the roster and building for the future around Hughes, Demko, and Petey, provided they could get, get, get good value in trades for Miller, Besser, Horvat, and Garland. I am not in the minority in thinking this, just anecdotally, uh, but it seems this is not talked about much in the media. Is this something you two would be opposed to? And look, Look, Jay, as you said, if you're getting if you're getting really good value in trades for all of those players, and I might take Horvat off the list, but Miller, Besser, Garland, again, I can see a scenario where, yeah, I would think that would make sense for the team. The problem for me comes with if you're doing that and then using the cap space to flesh out the roster of other players that help you help you can be competitive in the near term, I'm fine with that. If you're doing that with the intention of being really bad for two or three years to accumulate high draft picks, that concerns me. Because then, as you said, Drant, you're kind of pulling the rug out from Hughes, Petey, Demko, who should be this really core, uh, really fantastic core for you. So, look, you can make a lot of aggressive moves if you also have a plan to add talent to the roster in the short term, and I would be just fine with it. The The idea of tearing it down with the intention of, ah, you know what, we'll try to win again in three years, that's where you lose me a little bit. Yeah, I, fair enough. And we're getting some, um, we're getting so much good feedback. There's so many good questions right now, and we're winding down the show. And usually I like to finish with like a big point, but I, I just want to say, 
I'm going to file away all your LTI questions, all right. your all your what a successful deadline questions, you know, do your do you build a team around Besser questions. I'm going to file that all away and maybe on Friday we'll do like a we'll do like a ask us about the deadline sure. at, about like deadline mechanics. Yeah. We'll do like a primer. We'll do a primer show on Friday just because the amount of detailed questions we are getting from one of the most engaged and savvy hockey markets um, in, in the world, frankly. Uh, I love to see it. I love to see it. I honestly find your level of detail and, and intelligence inspiring listeners, and I want to address it all at length. At the length it deserves, we'll do so on Friday. And I, we should That's mention it. as well, not ready to roll out all of the official details just yet, but uh, get prepared for a an extra supersized edition of Canucks Hour on the deadline day of March 21st, oh, which I am really, really looking forward to. Uh, maybe some special guests dropping by on the show we, as well. We may even we may even ask you to gather around children yes. 10, 10 to 11 times, and I promise you at least... <laughs> and, and get the other drop ready, Faber. Get the other drop ready, and I promise you that I will bring up the Florida Panthers <laughs> no less than 50 times over the course Whoa! of the program regardless of whether or not all right a trade. all right now that is a high high over to hit uh, all right that's gonna do it for us today we will be back tomorrow to break down the Habs and the Canucks plus a whole lot more Canucks talk on the show tomorrow uh the people show Bick Nazar Randy Janet's coming up next it's Sportsnet 650 your home of the Canucks